The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. Unfortunately, I do have a live audience in front of me today, which is many of the people who stayed over uh, after the celebrations uh, yesterday of actually building a retreat centre, which is marvellous. And part of that uh, was the chanting, and I've often tried to explain just how the chanting works and how that it can inspire you and inspire other beings as well. And that's one of the reasons why I like to do chanting, which I fully understand, and chanting which can sometimes inspire not just myself, but everybody else who is listening. And when you can do that, it has a power to it, a great power to it. And I felt that myself. I may have confessed to you many years ago that when I was doing one type of chant, you know, the loving kindness chant, I just could not finish it. I knew all the words, but it was too, you may think this is strange for me to say this, but too inspiring for me. In other words, just my heart, my mind just took off where that chant was going to. It was a loving kindness uh, chant, and just to the whole, the whole universe, of course, your mind went there, and just you were just blissing out for the chanting. And, you know, actually, instead of just chanting it, you're actually doing it which was much, much more fun than just chanting words in Pali. And there's also some of the other chants which we do can be very powerful. And some of those meanings get energy coming up in my own mind and get energy coming up in the people who are listening to this. And sometimes it becomes you know, literally very, very inspiring. And those chants which are very inspiring that inspiration, that piti sukha, which comes up from inspiration, is an important part of our practice as Buddhists. You should never look down upon that, because that you can feel it. Not only does it give you good health, it clears the mind up, gives you energy. And once you have that energy, no matter what you need to do, you can always perform well, whether it's understanding the Buddhist teachings, practicing meditation or just helping out and doing the, the duties, even the physical duties. I mean, yesterday people said just how all the cleaning got finished really easily and all of the people were very happy and joyful, very few complaints, at least they didn't tell me any complaints. <laughs> but what that really meant was there was energy, inspiration in the place. It's easy enough to actually to read out suttas. It's easy enough to play Dhamma talks which have been recorded years ago, but to give it energy, to give it life, to give it full power so it reaches people's hearts and from the hearts to their minds and they fully understand it. That's powerful stuff. And that's one of the reasons it's sometimes amazing for me to see all of this. Oh, sorry, but this is in my mind now, so I'm going to talk about, you know, years and years ago where we had a big ceremony over in Perth. I don't know how many or any of you were there at the time. That was, were you there at the time, the 30th anniversary? Yeah, that was really amazing. Because what we did there, it was, well, you must have been there, John, 30th anniversary of the BSWA over there. So... <laughs> Part of my nature is something which, maybe because I'm a Leo. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> also, just because I was encouraged by Ajahn Chah, the teacher, whatever you do, give it everything you've got. Give it full, don't hold back anything. So we decided to do this big ceremony over in Perth, you know, for our 30th anniversary of our BSWA. You've been going much longer than we have over in Perth. We decided, let's give it a big boost. We wanted to do a ceremony. And so the ceremony, instead of somebody said, well, just a little small hall somewhere, no. <laughs> well, just maybe outside, no, not anywhere. Let's get the biggest place in the whole of Perth. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Which was the uh, Supreme Court Gardens. <laughs> 
And we thought, yeah, good idea, but it probably won't be free. As Buddhists, we always do things at the last minute. But it was free. It didn't matter how long it was, uh, how much it was going to cost us to hire everything. Nah, forget about costs. Let's do this. It's weird, isn't it? That sometimes we do these big projects. We say, how on earth are you going to raise all that funds? We always do somehow or other. At the last moment, usually. <laughs> I always remember that. So, so for even Bodhinyana Monastery, I remember we had three months to pay off the bill to buy the land. We didn't have anything on it yet. Three months. And the last, I think, one week before that three months was out, I remember Ajahn Chakra opening up a, a, an envelope, had a check inside just for the right amount of money so we could actually pay for that land. It's always been like that. You've got a lot of trust. And if you do something which is really good, it will always work out good. So anyway, so when we <laughs> we decided Supreme Court Gardens, and we just put a lot of effort, a lot of energy, a lot of money into all of this, and it was on WASAC. And this was one time the WASAC was on a Sunday, the full moon day, and that's when we were going to do our ceremony. So everything, everything was coming into place, perfect alignment of everything, except for one thing. In the morning when I woke up at Bodhinyana Monastery, it was raining heavily. And this was just the start. You checked on the uh, internet, and I don't know if we had internet then, but mm -hmm. radio, and it was, uh, a, a severe weather warning. A big storm was coming in from the Indian Ocean and was going to hit Perth at 7 p.m. that evening, exactly the time when we were going to have our ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> that was really good fun. And we all went in there to set up everything. Everybody got soaked. I remember some of the people there. Now our committee, oh, you got soaked in the dumber. I mean, the rain. <laughs> they were so wet, but they kept on working. And then we'd invited the premier at that time, who was Jeff Gallup. And he's still a good friend. He's actually the, the um, patron of uh, our retreat center. Actually, you should get, who's the premier of Victoria? No. Yes. Why did we invite him yesterday? Yes. We invite him next time to the opening. Yes. Why not? It's a big thing. So anyway, he was our patron. So three times <laughs> that evening, three times the premier office called and said, are you canceling? And someone had their mobile phone and said, nope. Are you cancelling? Nope. Are you cancelling? Nope. Three times. I refused to cancel. And there's also some other people who knew much more about the weather than I did. I remember, remember Brian Creek? Yeah. He used to be a, in the uh, Merchant Navy. He said, he told me, aside, Ajahn Brown, you're embarrassing us all. <laughs> I know the weather. The pressure is going down. There is going to be a storm. We can't do this. It embarrasses us. No. <laughs> My faith is really strong. And then also, uh, one of the monks at the time. That's a good old Akuihari. Oh, yes. Remember him? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a good friend of yours. Yeah. And anyway, he told me, Ajahn please, please stop it. You know, you're going to be washed out. It won't work. Please. <laughs> No. And of course, what happened was uh, uh, at this moment I was in the VIP tent, just arranging the chairs. Doesn't matter how senior you are, you also get wet, you work. And so when I was uh, arranging the chairs, this, this old Buddhist, she's Burmese, she came in crying, her eyes were streaming. She said, That's your brother, you've got to come outside now. And I thought, oh no, what else has happened? Just <laughs> gone wrong. 
That's what I thought. Somebody's broken a leg, they tripped over, electrocuted themselves. I didn't know what had happened. They were crying. And they never actually said anything to me. They just pointed up to the sky. Clouds had parted. And the full moon was out there. The first time all day it seemed, well, I obviously don't see the full moon during the, the, uh, the daytime, but the full moon was out there resplendent in the evening. You could see it. And that was just so inspiring. How that happened, you're not sure. Shouldn't have happened. The clouds had parted. We did the ceremony, and it was such a wonderful event to see that it's not just, I don't know, this nature seems to also be uh, inspired by something which is good. But I know that that day we did some really strong chanting to inspire the devas, that this is important for us. It's not for getting any money, it's getting inspiration to allow people to realize there's more to life than science. People's hearts are important. And the power of that chanting, the power of what happened was so amazing. After the ceremony finished, even when we were just packing up, it rained down so hard that Supreme Court Gardens was flooded, a couple of inches. The freeway was closed. And many people in surrounding areas didn't come. Because where they were, it was a water storm. The south, the north, the east, and the western suburbs too. They were all just couldn't believe we'd actually gone through the ceremony. And to make it very plain what happened, the next day, the head of the company who hired out all of the, the tents <clears throat> and the chairs and all the PA, PA system, they also... Um, sent an email to me, Ajahn Brahm, can you please tell us who's going to win the horse racing today? <laughs> <laughs> but where does that come from? That inspiration, like even yesterday, a powerful sunny day, everyone enjoyed themselves. Why does that happen? A lot of times it happens because there are other beings in this universe that they just want to have good things happen. And that's what the chanting does. If you understand it, you give it meaning, you're going to take the five precepts, you keep them. Or the eight precepts, you're going to live by these. If you're monks, obviously, but if you're uh, lay people, live by your five precepts. That's not too much to ask. That's common sense, as far as I'm concerned. Then you actually inspire. All sorts of incredible things happen. <laughs> Even... <laughs> Our nuns' monastery. Our nuns' monastery there, we were, uh, no way we could afford anything. Even though the BSV committee, I remember keeping in contact with you all during that time of trying to find some land, and you actually did say towards the end, doesn't matter if you can't afford it, get it and we'll help out. <laughs> well, that's really, really, really nice of you. I don't know if you could have done that legally. But <laughs> Nevertheless, just the thought that we'll help out somewhere because it's an important thing. We didn't need your help, but it was appreciated because you know, what happened was uh, we did our chanting beforehand. I think that was actually, um, we didn't declare the, uh, the fact that we'd really chanted heavily before the purchase <laughs> of that property. It was on auction. We really went for it really strong chanting, come on, this is a place for, for bhikkhunis. Where have they got a place for themselves? A bhikkhuni monastery, it's hard enough to restart this, but let it happen, come on, we need your help. This powerful chanting. I remember doing that with Ajahn Chitamaro. We went there about an hour before the auction was to begin. Found a nice quiet place right in the center, the highest place. We really went for it when we did the auction. $25,000 increments. And we'd arranged, we could have just about, we'd be stretching us, 600,000 was our limit. We couldn't do any more. And then eventually we got to 600. Uh, I, I can't do any auctions, but our, our representative put their hand up 600,000. And then, please, Davis, 
keep people's mouths closed. <laughs> <laughs> Please lock their lips so they can't say anything. Please. 625, someone else said. I thought, oh no. So close, but we've lost it. And then, and then, I represented it. 650, and our treasurer, I really feel sorry for treasurers. <laughs> our treasurer went bananas. He went berserk. <laughs> Stop him, my jump up. You can't do this. Reverse the bid, do something. Else. But that's not my character, as you know. Well, let's see what happens. And it passed in at 6.50. We got it. And of course, the inspiration afterwards. Wow. We'll find the extra 50,000. We'll find it somewhere. I don't know where. We didn't have it. Doesn't matter if we don't have it. I'd make a very, very, very bad politician because every time we try to do something, it always costs more than you expect. <laughs> we managed to get it anyway. It's inspirational. And that sort of chanting. That's what it's all about. You've got to be reasonable as a president of the BSWA Indira. We allow it to the monks to you know take it just to that next level. <laughs> and that's actually how things worked in Buddhism you know, for such a long time. That inspiration is something fantastic. And the other little story, because somebody reminded me of this yesterday. And yesterday when we were talking about the um, uh, well, when people had a chance to chat with me and have their books signed and stuff, even <coughs> signing books, and I don't know how many books I've signed in my life, but the, the record was in Indonesia when I signed 1,000 in one hour because this is something which I love. No, I shouldn't say this to you, but something which I kind of like. <coughs> let's test yourself, push yourself. So I say we had. 1,000 books for VIPs and stuff, which I wanted to distribute. Had one hour, that's all I had. Okay, let's go for it. Somebody was opening up side, opening up side, opening up side. But afterwards, my poor arm could not be lifted. It really hurt. But fortunately, somebody gave me some, they did Thai massage on it. First time I've ever had Thai massage. It worked, amazing. But anyway, all of that sort of inspirational stuff which you have to do. And yesterday I was doing it. Try to the signing of books was not as important as looking at the people and talking with them, having some contact. So please don't just be uh, separated from the people who support you. It's only a small thing which you give them, but they get a little, so much out of it. Anyway, this gentleman, this was he was telling me about his favourite temple over in uh, Thailand was Wat Bawar. And that reminded me of the story of Wat Bawara, which was, yeah, this is a fantastic story, but absolutely true, because I know the people involved in this. There, were, there was this uh, American. He was working for the Peace Corps instead of you know, doing violent things. That was an alternative to being drafted into an army. So he was in the Peace Corps in Thailand for two years. And once he'd finished his two years of uh, service, he decided he would like to try what it's like to be a monk. Because in Thailand, you can actually just try it out, just ordain for you know, six months or three months or however long you want, just to see. Lots, we get lots of good monks that way. Because you don't know what it's like until you try it. So this monk, well, he was a man at the time. He was in a hotel in Bangkok, a cheap hotel. How do you become a monk? What do you do? So he went to see the concierge. He didn't, the concierge didn't know what he was talking about, but he did say there was one temple <coughs> over in Bangkok which sometimes had Western monks. Do you remember, um, say, Ajahn Kantipalo? Mm. Okay. That's where he was from, yeah. from that place. That's where he ordained. So they allowed some Westerners to ordain there. So to go to what by what? But then what do I actually do? He said, we'll get some food in the morning, and then when the monks come out on arms round, put some food in the monk's bowl, and then ask my please, I want to be a monk, what to do? That's all the instructions he got. So he went to what by what, and really early in the morning, about four o'clock or something, the whole place was locked. No one was around. 
just walking up and down outside. And that's when this, this Thai man came to see him and said, what are you doing? He said, well, I, I want to become a monk. And you know, I was told to come outside with some food. I've got the food here, but there's no monks outside. And this Thai gentleman who could speak perfect English said, oh, the monks aren't going to come out for another couple of hours yet. But he said, never mind, I can take you inside. And this monk got out these keys and went to this big iron gate and then to the Upositor Hall, Hall, opened up the hall, turned on the lights, and he gave this American this guided tour of the Wapawan Upositor Hall. That's where they ordain everybody. Now, something to know about this story is that that is where the kings and princes of Thailand get ordained for short periods of time, but they all had to get ordained for at least a short time. That's where they all get ordained. And that gate is known as the royal gate. Only royalty can go through that gate. Everybody else goes to other gates to get in there. And all my life, when I was staying in Thailand, I'd never walk through that gate. I'm not royalty. But this American did. And the hours went past very quickly, a couple of hours. And the gentleman was explaining all of the, the paintings on the wall. The paintings you see on the walls of temples, they all have a story. They're mostly coming from Jataka tales or you know, stories in the Dhammapada commentary. They all have a meaning. But the way that they are um, drawn or, or painted, you have to really know the story to be able to put it all together. And it was amazing what uh, this man told him. And afterwards, he said, the monks are going to come out soon. So you go out the door, out the main gate, wall gate, and turn right, and then the monks will be out there soon. And he did. The monks came out, put some food in one of the monks' bowl. I want to be about here, just wait here. And when I come back, we'll take him inside. And that's what happened. And they started training him to be a monk. You have to learn many rules, the Vinaya rules, and also you have to know the procedure of being a monk, all the chanting you have to do. So you need a lot of training. But then he started to complain, this American. It's very rare that Americans complain. <laughs> he said, I can't understand this monk you've given me you know, to train me in all the charting, the procedures. Can you please select another person to train me? He said, this is the best English speaker in the whole monastery. And that's when the American said, what about that temple boy, a temple attendant? who I met the first day. What temple attendant? The one who had the keys to the main gate. You walk through that main gate, that's only for royalty. No one's got the key for that except a secretary or the abbot or something. And he, you entered the apostle hall that time of the morning? That's impossible. And they... <laughs> They took him straight to the abbot of the monastery. That was Samdet Nyana Sangha. You know, weird thing is that Samdet Nyana Sangha and Ajahn Tate both came to Perth before I came there. There's wonderful photos of them coming such an early time before I even... Uh, was I a day now? I'm not sure. But anyway... Especially Ajahn Tate is one of the forest monks who was staying in a, basically it was a hippie commune over in Australia. It's <laughs> just amazing monks. But anyway, back down to the main story. And, and the abbot of Wapawan was listening to the tale, what happened and why. And then he stopped the monk. The, uh, his, his name was Doug, the lay person. I won't tell you exactly which duck it is, but anyway, and so, yeah, I shouldn't have said that, should I? <laughs> so try and keep these things quiet. 
by names. But anyway, he, uh, he interrupted Doug Stock and he got the secretary out to write this all down. Because again, that's a royal gate and they're very strict in time. You can't do that. You can't just walk through it. No one's got the key for that except a couple of very, very, very senior monks. And apparently you can't even turn on electricity where this fellow is supposed to have turned on the electricity. And not even the abbot knew the stories behind all of those paintings. And at the end, once it was all written down, it's in the records of what mm -hmm. were one. Once it was all written down, they asked the monk, the, the candidate, the American, what did he look like, this temple man? He said he was, no, he was, he wasn't a boy, he was just a fully grown man. And he was wearing traditional Thai clothes, but nothing really special, spoke perfect English. What did he look like? Who was, we don't know this man. And then how can you describe somebody? And he said, I don't know. He was just a Thai man. And apparently he was just scratching his head as like Westerners do when we, before COVID. <laughs> scratching his head looking around and then he froze it's him that's him there's a portrait of him on the on the wall of the abbot's office king rama the fourth the one who was built that temple or rather sponsored it who died maybe 150 years earlier The king of Thailand who built that temple, which is why he could go through that royal gate, mm. which is why he knew everything about those paintings in there, which even the present generation didn't know and could explain it perfectly. And he said that was him, the one who helped somebody become a monk. And I told that to quite a few people, and some of the especially the Sinhalese members of our community. That really shocks them. This actually happens these days, just like it happens in the suttas, like Yasser when he went forth, the doors opened, which were supposed to be closed. Good things happen. That still occurs even in this state. And that is not exaggerated at all. That is in the history of Wapawan. When I told that story once at the, uh, it was actually the Thai embassy in Singapore. After giving that story, somebody stood up, can I ask a question? It was the ambassador. Oh, they didn't actually call it ambassador, the high commissioner to Singapore said, I'm on the committee of Wapawan. He said, I've seen that story. It's totally true, exactly as you said it. So sometimes if you're doing something very wonderful in this world and you're good people, of course there's heavenly beings around. And I say that as a theoretical physicist. <laughs> of course there are incredible beings around and they can sometimes come and be of service to you. If you don't understand that, sometimes you can go back to something a little bit more basic in Buddhism. It's just about our perception. There's many intelligent people who are Buddhists, and sometimes people get it all wrong. Why? Intelligence is not enough. And the story behind this is how your cognitive processes, especially your perceptions and the thoughts which come from those perceptions, can be distorted very easily. And that was the, st the story, uh, well, the best one I've, I've heard, which is why I keep repeating it, uh, which was told to me by a friend from university, that was Bernard, Bernard Carr, C-A-R-R. He was uh, one of the close associates, I, I really mean this, it's no exaggeration, well, the inner three or four people helping Stephen Hawkins. So Bernard was emeritus, emeritus, now he's emeritus professor of theoretical physics at Queen Mary College, I think, in London University.
brilliant guy. And he's also a Buddhist. And he's also, uh, again, the president of the Psyche Research Society in London. Why? It's not just hunting ghosts, but taking experimental physics, understanding to a deeper level by doing these incredible experiments. And the one he told me happened in Imperial College in London University. And he's one of his mates, one of his uh, associates, said they found out how to do levitation. How to raise objects, say that little clock in front of me, how to raise it up above the ground. And because the person who claimed this was a physicist, and he had a good reputation, when he said he was going to demonstrate this, so many other people came along to, to, to look. And it was done in a laboratory, and I had a lecture theatre in, in Imperial College in London, sorry. And they had all the equipment there to take a video of this, ultraviolet, infrared, you name it, they had it there to make sure if it worked, they would have evidence. So he came in, it was the flower pot experiment. He came in with a flower pot, put it on the bench. Many of you remember these old fashioned lecture theatres, you know, just all the seats going up on, they call it bleachers. And then the big table in the front there. So the um, demonstrator, this professor put the flap on the table, said there's no strings or anything. He said, now we're going to do levitation. But he said, I would need everybody's assistance to set the right atmosphere. He wanted everybody in the room to start chanting Om. Now the Hindu Om, just that one word Om. So please chant Om. And had, and I wish I'd have seen this. I think this would have been the most interesting for me, one of the most interesting, to see all these old professors, because I know all the old professors which I knew at university. They were so conservative. To see them all together chanting Om, 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 would have made me burst out laughing. But anyway, they all did this. And as they were chanting out on, of course, a flower pot rose into the air. It actually worked. No strings. Rose up into the air. When they start, stopped chanting, it went down again. They videoed it. Photos, videos, everything. And then they asked everyone afterwards, what do you think of that? What's your reaction? Get feedback afterwards. And the powerful thing was there's a couple of very well-known professors, experimenters in physics and science, who are trained in objective neutrality. So whatever you see, you have to record. You can't bend the truth. They've been trained in that for their lifetime. And they claimed the flower pot never rose into the air at all. It was always on the table. Even when they were shown photographs, videos, they said, no, no, that's just all fake. That was the whole point of the experiment. Even though that flower pot did rise into the air, to those scientists, it was impossible and it can't happen. Therefore, to them, it didn't happen. To them, they didn't even see it, didn't even register in their conscious awareness. I often use the word bare awareness, but bare awareness is sometimes distorted before you even realize it. It doesn't even come to your consciousness. But of course, what happened there, for those who haven't heard the story before, was that there was a huge electromagnet underneath the desk. And when they turn on, as you all know, turn on a huge current of electricity, there's always a hum. And they would be able to discern, notice that hum of the increased electric current from somewhere. That's why chanting Aum was just to, to hide <laughs> the fat electricity being turned off. That was all. But the point was that they didn't understand why it had lifted up into the air. They thought it was impossible. Because they thought it was impossible, to them, they didn't even perceive it. And that was a marvelous thing about that experiment, to always actually know what the truth is to actually to see clearly, to know what's really happening, to understand things like the Buddha's teachings. It's not enough just to read them. 
even if you've got a perfect um, intellect and you can collect all of those teachings together and understand how they all fit together, it's not enough. You still need to see. And that's one of the reasons why we inspire ourselves to have enough energy and courage to actually open our hearts up so we don't resist anything. We see the truth. Very often, as many people in meditation know, you get scared of seeing the truth. In the same way, a prisoner who's been in jail for so many years gets afraid of freedom. They don't know what freedom is like. It's a bit challenging for them. It's one of the reasons why truth can sometimes be scary. But after a while, truth is always beckoning. Do you know how many times you're scared? You have to keep going back there and keep going a bit further, a bit further. Because freedom, it's got a taste, a taste of freedom. It's just so enticing. It's true. It's real. It's one of the reasons why we learn how to calm our mind down. Not into dullness into fearlessness. So what we see is actually what happens. It's true. We don't distort it with what we want or what we don't want. That is sometimes how impossible things happen. How retreat centers get built. Shouldn't happen. It does. Okay, that's uh, enough for the talk. Now, hopefully, we can have some questions. Thank you very much, Ajahn. We have a, a few number of questions online already. And just for everyone listening, if you do have a question for Ajahn Brahm, please write it in the live chat, and we'll do our best to get through as many questions as we can. The first question comes from Ram in Germany, who asks, when I socialize, I also tend to get carried away by the sensual pleasures like movies, songs, food, but I understand their effects and I don't want to be involved. What should I do? What to do is uh, before you even go out socializing, make a little resolution to yourself. Mind, be wary. Do not sort of get involved in, uh, say, music. Whenever... Choose the biggest obstacle and then say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Because a lot of times, one's awareness gets a bit uh, confused, gets a bit dull. And so that uh, there's so much going on there, one doesn't really realize where are the red traffic lights. One can go past and go through them too quickly and get into big trouble. So find out what is the most dangerous sensory pleasure for you. If you really want to, avoid it, you can. It's just like, you know, a simple thing, which uh, in the old days, people would actually smoke a lot. And they said, how can I stop smoking cigarettes? You know, just I, I try and leave them alone, but then one's in my mouth before I realize it. It's just the old habit. Is that you've got to make that resolution. Not that you won't smoke cigarettes, but you won't pick them up in the first place. And then you find out your mindfulness is triggered. And once you start picking up, oh, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm not. The mind can be programmed, as you all know. And the one little thing of programming mindfulness is to tell yourself when you're going to get up in the morning. When I first did that as a student, it was incredible. You know, you said, you've got to get up. I was on a retreat. and got to get up at, I think, 5 o'clock in the morning at that retreat. And so they said, well, just uh, put your alarm clock at five past five and tell yourself when you go to bed, I will, I will wake up at five o'clock. I will wake up at five o'clock. I will wake up at five o'clock in the morning. And just do that with as much seriousness and awareness as you possibly can. In your own words, keep it simple. And it worked every morning. You're up before your alarm clock rang. And it was just wonderful to be able to know that. And even these days, you can actually sometimes program your mindfulness. I must stop this talk 
10.45 or something. You don't even need to look at the clock after that. You have a feel for what the time is. And then you stop. You can program your mind all sorts of things. Because actually in life you get so caught up and the life is flowing so fast, it's, it's very difficult to stop it. If you program your mind, you can stop it pretty easily. And it also afterwards, realize how much more freedom you have when you don't get caught up in these things. I don't know if I told you that when I was a student, I used to row in an eight, you know, the uh, rowing an oar in the eight. And I'm not an athletic person. The only reason I did that is because you were socializing. And please excuse me, that was the time I was still drinking alcohol. And uh, it was uh, some sherry, really nice sherry. <laughs> I must have had too many because I found out I'd signed up. <laughs> this club. Oh my goodness, what have I done? <laughs> I gave up after the first year. Anyway, next question, please. Thank you, Ajahn. The next question relates to the topic of your talk. It's uh, Rick from Indiana has asked, Ajahn, how do we maintain an inspired practice without pushing too hard or becoming compulsive? Wow. Pushing hard never works. You just get tired. Compulsion, just it just uh, exchanges just one addiction for another addiction. Instead, one sees the beauty in things. This is one of the talks I gave the other night. Uh, the way you actually use your mind gets very, very clear and peaceful. You can see the beauty in so much. Even in this um, concrete flooring in this room over here, it's like just uh, this ground concrete with lots of black stones in it. But I don't know how many of you have been looking at the stones here and just a pattern of them. Sometimes you can see some amazing sort of patterns in here. Or you can just see it's just a concrete floor and just pass over it. When your mind becomes very powerful, it becomes very delightful. That's where the happiness and the joy and the beauty comes from. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. It's in the purity of the mind. See beauty anyway. That's wonderful to see that. So again, that's again a sort of answer to that question. Once your mind does start to become very strong because you have restrained, you have um, kept precepts, you have done good things, you are inspired, and it should keep the beauty very strong. We've made you remain inspired. Are you still inspired by what you've been doing here? Especially the monks who've been living here. You see it every day. You have a monastery, good monastery here in uh, Victoria. For years we've been aiming for this, and it's here now. You have a retreat center coming, your own retreat center. And little amazing things which you will find happen. At the retreat center, which we have in Western Australia, it means that some people, after a retreat is finished, they've got such good meditation, they carry on. It's our retreat center. You can stay as long as you like. If somebody else says you've got to clean up and get out of here because someone else wants to use it, stay as long as you like. And even little things like one of their fellows, he had a cat, a little cat, and he said, look, if I, I can't leave my apartment, he, he'd gone through some uh, family problems before. He was so attached to his cat, and the cat attached to him, he said, like, look, honestly, I can't leave that cat alone. He will just almost die or something. So we had a quick meeting with our local retreat center subcommittee. We voted. So the cat went on retreat with him. <laughs> Why not? It was a nice cat. It was a house cat. Didn't cause any problem to anybody, but we got inspired. I got inspired even. Yeah, why not? So little things like that. If you're in a retreat center, your compassion and kindness can grow stronger and stronger. Anyway, sorry. Uh, next question. Thank you, Rajan. Next question is from Nicole, who asks, why do bad things sometimes happen to good people who don't deserve it? Is that their bad karma from their previous life? Is reincarnation real? 
Oh, reincarnation is real. If you want to prove it, well, I know I won't suggest this. <laughs> <laughs> of course, reincarnation is real. And look, if you don't believe in reincarnation or rebirth in this life, I guarantee you will in the next. <laughs> so. I know some years ago, some years ago that people just uh, noticed that more and more people are actually accepting the truth of rebirth, reincarnation. Reincarnation is making a comeback. <laughs> so yeah, but why do bad things happen to good people? I've seen that so often. Not bad things. If, you know, you get, say you go to university, You'll find, say, no, give me a subject like biology or something. You'll find the tests you have get harder and harder the more that you uh, progress you know, in your understanding of uh, biology. And when you, you know, do postgraduate work, of course, they're harder tests. That's why one explanation that it's not bad things. It's more challenging things happen to those people who should be able to understand it and take it and learn from it. All the teachers which I knew who were tough, you learned the most from. You didn't like them, you learned a lot from them. So you thank them. So little by little, good things happen to bad people. Is that the case? Of course. And bad things happen because good bad people they don't need to learn so much. <laughs> <laughs> the bad things happen to, to good people because they're challenged. Actually, it's not really that true. You may be a good person, but you're not perfect. The more perfect you are, the more you, these things which happen in life, they're not really bad things. It's a bad thing. Someone dies, it's not a bad thing, that's nature. You get injured, you get sick, that's nature. How many people in this room have never been sick? You've all been sick, which means if you hadn't been sick, you'd be weird. If you've never been sick in your life, there's the Monash University would take you and do experiments on you. <laughs> <laughs> So it's actually wrong, something wrong with you if you're too healthy. Now, I always say this, if ever you are sick, you should never ever tell the doctor, doctor, I'm sick, there's something wrong with me. Please always say, doctor, there's something right with me, I'm sick again. If you have a fever, that's nature's way of trying to burn off the, the virus or the bacteria. So nature, your body has a way of dealing with sicknesses, and it's quite okay to be sick. So please, if any of you sick here today, please say, there's something right with me. I'm sick again. Why should we always stigmatize sickness? It makes no sense to me. Don't stigmatize it. That's the body's way of dealing with problems. So anyway. Another question. Thank you, Ajahn. The next question is similar in, in it's, uh, it's about karma. Eddie asks, there are people who meditate easily. There are some who meditate harder. Is it because of the past karma and what can we do to bad karma? Okay. Yes. Meditate with, diff meditate with difficulty, meditate with ease. Sometimes it's meditation is one of the easiest things in the world to do. We know how to do it. Obvious. You're in the present moment. You're being kind. Is it hard to be kind? It should be the easiest thing in the world to be kind. To be in this moment, you're here. To be gentle. If you want to watch the breath, of course that's going to be difficult. Again, I was fortunate that as a young man, 
I had um, hay fever. I didn't really know it was hay fever at the time, only later on I realized I had allergies. So, so often my nose was blocked up, especially during the summertime when all the pollen was around. So that meant when they said, watch the breath of the tip of your nose, I couldn't do that. <laughs> there was no breath at the tip of my nose. <laughs> and I thought, okay, summertime, and I, I couldn't meditate, do something else at summertime. And then I came across the Mahasi Sayadaw method, watch the, <laughs> watch the belly go up and down, up and down. And I thought, wow, now I can meditate all year round. But then when you became a monk, that didn't work either. You know why? Because when your attention was down there and you were really hungry, and I was really hungry when I was a young monk. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of watching the rise and fall of the abdomen, I noticed the emptiness of my stomach. <laughs> 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 I was hungry. Oh, but then you know, then you started learning some Pali. There was no mention there about watching your nose. I never saw nose meditation anywhere, or even lip meditation or belly meditation. It was breath meditation, and that was only one way. Learning how to make the mind peaceful. Stillness. Do you really need to watch the breath to be still? I learn peace first, and then the breath comes up, the natural breath. I'm always breathing, even if my nose is blocked. But you feel the breath in different ways. So little by little, you just learn just how to, to understand more deeply the Buddha's teachings. Most importantly, these things actually worked. Because they weren't, I found that meditation was the easiest thing in the world to do. Just let go. It's really hard to do things. But just to, to be in this moment with kindness. Kindness is gorgeous. And you don't have to pay anything for it. You don't even need to be healthy to be kind. So you don't have to be smart. Remember all those great monks and nuns in the time of the Buddha? The great examples was that um, Chula Pantica. Yeah, Chula Pantica. He just they tried to teach him meditation, he didn't know how to do it because he had a very simple mind. They had to, similar to the cloth, take a cloth, keep, keep rubbing it, rubbing it, rubbing it, rubbing it. And it got dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. And that was enough to take away all of his like, sensory desires. However long you use it, you know, just the worse it gets. So little by little, he became a fortnight hour hut. You know, one of my famous stories, this is a Thai story, because I grew up in Thailand. There must be many stories similar to this in Sri Lanka. And that was of this boy. And he took him into the grade one at school. He failed grade one. <laughs> now that is a pretty sort of amazing achievement. <laughs> I don't know what he could do. <clears throat> couldn't draw stick men or couldn't do plasticine or I don't know what you do grade one these days. But anyway, so I had to repeat grade one. Second time, all his friends went up to grade two. This is in primary school. So grade two failed, grade three failed again. And so that's when his... Uh, you're Australian. How many real Australians are here? How many Vietnamese? Well, there's this great joke from, I've got Australian passport. This great joke from this Vietnamese comedian. I forget what his name is. He's in Melbourne somewhere. But anyway, he was saying, when he was a kid, he asked, why do all Australians wear thongs? While all the sort of the other nationalities wear actually shoes or sandals or something. He said, oh, because... Uh, Reason is that um, that's right. Um, how, can, how can I say this without offending too many people? Oh, basically, <laughs> <laughs> here, we, here we go. Make it short. Please excuse me. Cut this from the recording afterwards <laughs> because all Australians are so stupid they can't even tie up shoelaces. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's not true. Please, please don't do so. It's pretty right. Okay, yeah. We'll go back from there. What was I talking about before? Yeah, I forget now. Well, I told jokes, I just. Okay, well, that answers the question, maybe. What was that before then? Chula Pandika. Oh, Chula Pandika, yeah. yeah. All these stupid people yeah. who become fully enlightened, yeah. Yeah, he couldn't get onto grade one. So yeah. Oh, that's right, grade one. Okay. <laughs> Good times on Thank you. <laughs> and then, so, uh, three, no, three years, can't progress at primary school. So it's a waste of time. So they send him back home. And what can the parents do with somebody who's obviously so educationally challenged? They can't even sort of get him to learn how to help with the farming. So in those days in Thailand, they'd make them go to the monastery and ordained as a novice. And the, the abbots of these monasteries can be very, very kind and very patient. So they kept on trying to train him how to chant. A simple chant like Namo Tassa. It took forever to understand Namo. Okay, now you've got on to the second word, Tassa. What was that first word again? <laughs> His mind was so simple. And so after a year or two at the city monastery, the village monastery, he said, the abbot is, look, he's un unteachable. So what do they do as a last resort? They send them to the forest monasteries. <laughs> <laughs> And he sent him to the forest monastery. The teacher there just gave him a simple meditation object. And he could watch something like the breath for hours. His mind was so simple. And he became one of the great enlightened masters of meditation in Thailand. Couldn't pass grade one, but became fully enlightened. And when he needed to do some chanting, like all monks have to do some chanting, Apparently, he said that how he chanted was he could remember a previous life when he was a monk. And he would actually, doing a ceremony, period chanting, for example, he'd remember his life in the previous existence. And he used that to actually, to, uh, for the chanting in this existence, he could actually transfer it. That's the only way he could learn chanting. And Patachara, who was totally crazy, when she went to see the Buddha. And that's another thing that sometimes the BSV make sure your dress code. Remember, Patacha was totally naked. <laughs> she was a young woman. But the Buddha had compassion, it's always much greater. Yes, and get a robe around her, but don't just say, don't get in here. Allow people to come in to listen to Dhamma. And then sometimes the results are incredible. Patachara, it's one of the reasons why I got inspired, you know, to try and help whatever I can to give ordination to the bhikkhunis. Because you read her story, it's fantastic. She became an amazing teacher, incredible teacher. Kisa Gotami, all these amazing beings. They were, and uh, what was it, the dwarf? Badia, oh, the dwarf, yeah, or oh, they bent over. He didn't actually look impressive, but he also became full of mind. So don't just, and Gurimala, obviously. The Buddha was giving opportunities for so many beings, people. One of my favorites was this man. He uh, became, he asked to go forth when he was 120 years of age. This is in the suttas anyway, in the Theragata, whatever. And 120 years, they gave him Pabaja, novice ordination first of all, and then full ordination. And then he became a stream winner, and he became fully enlightened, and then just died soon afterwards. It's called leaving it to the end, <laughs> the last minute. He did it. Of course, and he wouldn't ordain every person, you know, who was really old, but he obviously he had some special karma there, 120 years of age. Anyway, so we expand our boundaries. 
every individual, little by little. It's amazing just what can happen. Okay, so it's 10.45 now. So, okay, so what do we do now? Lunch. Or tomorrow night? Yeah, tomorrow night. Uh, the, we've got the guided meditation. So um, if there are any questions, you can uh, join the guided meditation tomorrow and perhaps ask those mm -hmm. questions. And also the Malvern Town Hall event. Um, any outstanding questions, be there. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so now the monks are going to go, and the nuns, where do they begin? Go down there. We're down, okay. getting ready for it. Okay, now we're getting ready for our lunch. Yeah. So now we can just bow three times to the Buddha and do our hang Yeah. Yeah. One. Yeah.